Once I started fly casting, every time I caught a fish on anything but a fly rod, I just felt like I had missed an opportunity to have caught that fish on a fly rod. And, and, I, and I'm sitting there, could somebody please put a rod in the water? I like to think that fly fishing saved my life. And uh, fly fishing became a passion in which I could, I could become completely absorbed. And it really helped me through a tough time. And I'll, I'll always appreciate that about fly fishing. Chief Justice and I sat there, whoop, there's a flag up. We both run to the flag, run to the trap, and I go, oh, you you take it. You, it's probably some little shove or something. She pulls in the biggest bass of the day. Welcome to Flyline Podcast, where we enjoy the interesting stories behind the legendary guides and luminaries connected to Maine fishing. I'm Michael Jones. Today, we'll be talking with our special guests, John and Will Lund. John Lund is the owner of the Maine Sportsman magazine. John is a former state representative, a former member of the Maine State Senate, and was the Attorney General for the state of Maine in the 1970s. John is a retired lawyer and conservation advocate. John's career reflects his passion for preserving rivers and lands, and his personality is humble and soft-spoken. His contributions to the Maine sporting community shaped many important efforts that we continue to celebrate today. John helped start the Maine Sportsman magazine in the early 70s and continues today as the owner and publisher. The fly fishing community in Maine owes a great debt of gratitude to John for the work he has done to shape our sporting heritage. And I consider him to be a Maine legend and luminary in the Maine fly fishing community as a result of his influence. Will Lunn is John's son. Will graduated from Bowdoin College and eventually earning his law degree from the University of Maine School of Law. Will directed the Consumer Protection Agency for the state of Maine from 1987 through 2022. Ultimately, Will became a columnist for the family-run magazine, contributing writing and columns for the Sebago Lake region. Naturally, in 2017, Will became the managing editor of The Maine Sportsman. Will Lund is a registered Maine guide, and like his father John, has a gentle demeanor and a gift for bringing out the best in the stories that he edits for his contributing columnists. Nothing gets released from this wonderful monthly publication without the careful editing and guidance of both John and Will. The Lund family is highly respected in the Kennebec County region for their civic contributions, and it comes with great pleasure to introduce the Flyline podcast audience to this incredible father and son duo that created and continue to create the Maine Sportsman magazine. John and Will, welcome to Flyline podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. We're here at the uh, spacious offices of the Maine Sportsman magazine in Augusta, and uh, this is a magazine started by my father together with some other folks back in the early 1970s. So we're, we've are we been around more than 50 years. I think of the Maine Sportsman as an iconic publication, much like maybe the Maine Gazetteer or Blueberries for Sal. Short of the Kennebec Journal, the Bangor Daily News, Portland Press Herald, I would guess that your sporting magazine might be the most prolifically read sporting magazine in the state. Well, thank you very much. Would we, I be uh, accurate in saying we, that? We we don't disagree with that at all. Yeah, we have a we have a good uh, loyal readership. The readership is about half the folks live in Maine full time. The other half have uh, sporting camps here, hunting camps here, or they visited or have hunted here, or they've applied for a biggest bucks patch and have learned about us that way. So we have readers uh, in Maine, 
in New England and actually across the country. I'm amazed because I do a lot of guiding, Will, and I very often will come and meet a client for the first time, and they're from out of state. And what do they have on the passenger seat of the front of their car, the main sportsman? And some of my best clients are subscribers. And uh, I'm, of course, a subscriber as well. I think it's a wonderful publication. It's fun. It's light. And it kind of takes a lot of different directions. And that's really why I wanted to have you guys on the podcast, because a lot of people know about the magazine, but they don't know about what lives behind the name and who the people are. And so I want to definitely talk to John a lot about his background. Um, for the audience, John Lund really is is a household name in Maine sporting on a lot of ways. He was responsible for a lot of uh, political action that happened in the 70s and um, and also was a Maine attorney general. Right, John? Am I saying right. that? But I want to back up. You're you're originally from Augusta and your parents came here. Tell me that story. Actually, actually I was born in Plattsburgh, New York, and my family moved to Maine in 1935. My father was a paper engineer, and he came to Maine to start to convert a mill that had been shut down during the Depression. We settled in Augusta. Where, where was your home? It was uh, on what is Fuller Road, now out Western Avenue. Uh, it's uh, become a uh, built-up area now. Okay. But it was uh, the boondocks then. Yeah. And uh, I still think about what Western Avenue looked like when there were two residents on the whole street, I think, at that time. And I just drove down Western Avenue and there's a street light every eighth of a mile, if not more. Dad used to hunt rabbits out back of his house off Western Avenue. So that's uh, that's how long ago it was. Tell me about, uh, go, you went to Coney High School. Tell me about, you have a pretty decorated academic background, John. Tell me about your background with your education. and That's how a lot that, of hooey. Let's hear it. Yeah. <laughs> you went to Coney. <laughs> no, I don't have any elegant background. I, I uh, graduated from Coney High School and uh, in due course uh, attended Bowdoin College and got a BS from Bowdoin College. Yeah. And uh, went on to law school after that, mm -hmm. uh, Harvard Law School. Mm -hmm. And uh, n nothing particularly unusual about that progression, mm -hmm. but was admitted to practice of law. Mm -hmm. And in due course, I ran for the legislature. I had served on the Augusta City Council huh. and, uh, and uh, moved on to the legislature and had a lot of fun there because in those days, the staff availability to the committees was zero. Oh. And if somebody came in who could draft or redraft the bill, uh, they were a prized commodity. And so uh, I I traded on that a little bit, I guess, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, learned some of the mechanics and came to... Uh, enjoy the process of writing laws. One of the laws I particularly was interested in was the fluorescent orange hunting requirement. That is hard to believe now, but we have a dozen fatal hunting accidents in the deer season fairly regularly. And uh, most of them were because people were wearing red and black woolen garments that didn't show up very well in at dusk. And there were some some uh, uh, trigger happy people that were uh, hearing a uh, hearing a sound and seeing a deer. Let me ask you a question, John. Uh, I didn't know that. I, I guess it, it makes total sense when you think of the history because you see the old photos of people hunting in the wool. Yeah. 
Were we one of the first states to take on that challenge? You must have been very, you must we have fairly, been very conscious fairly, of what was going close. on. Not the first. There, there were some others that had done it. But the, the first year, we tried to get a bill requiring Hunter Orange. I sponsored the bill. It uh, met a lot of the opposition from the hunters. Uh, it's not the traditional thing to do. And um, another member, a friend of mine, sponsored it the second go. And I was in the Senate at that time, and the uh, not to pass report was accepted in the House, and I uh, I tabled it in the Senate. And one of the other senators said, if this had been for a trial area, uh, I could have supported it. So I said, if I table this bill, will you put an amendment on making it a trial area? Yeah. And he did. Where was it? And we had a trial area in the western part of the state, up in Oxford County. Perfect. And no fatalities that, that next season. The year after that, it went through like... Yeah, everywhere. Yeah. Right. It's like the seatbelt bill or anything else. You know, it's just people are... They don't... Uh, change is never met with a warm handshake, John, is it? Well, hunters are among the conservative ones. Always. You know, I, I see the same thing now when it comes to, to uh, lead ammunition. It's it's clear that lead ammunition is dangerous to people that eat the meat, and um, yet uh, the legislature is uh, not ready to bite the bullet. <laughs> yeah, no, sorry so, about that. Not at all. No, this is why we're talking, John. I think it's great. And so I know that your your work uh, you were in the you were in the House, you were in the Senate, and then you took on the challenge of becoming the Attorney General. Right. Who appointed you? The legislature makes the choice. Oh, okay. So you have an advantage if you've served in the legislature for a while and you make some friends and, uh, and you try to convince them that you're a responsible person and you go out and visit them at their home home ports uh, and uh, sometimes they will support you and they did. Yeah. And what year was that, John? Do you remember what year was that? I want to say 74 through 76, I, I think. Uh that's about right, but it was only a two-year period. Right. Um, yeah. So it was about 75, 76. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for your work. Anyway, yeah. it, was, uh, it was great fun. So about that time, um, I know you, had, you were influential in – there was a dam project that was going to be proposed in the Allagash. Correct me if I'm getting this wrong. Yeah. And you were a Republican. That's right. And I think if anyone was to call it early, they would have said that you would have been in favor of it. But you decided to help well, make I, the problem. Basically, you didn't agree that it should happen on on uh, the grounds of environmental purposes. That's basically true. The reality is that the flow of water in the Allagash does not hold up all year long. And it was reported by some that during the quiet time of the year, you could pee across the river. The flow was so slow. Yeah. And uh, I uh, decided ahead of time that this was a project that, that really should not go through. And um, there was a scoping session that was scheduled. Okay. And as Attorney General, I had an opportunity to speak at the scoping session. And I found a staff person in the AG's office who was really a good writer. 
and he wrote a devastating criticism uh, of the whole project and the unfeasibility of the whole thing and the the uh, fact that it was just a, a, a bad idea. Yeah. And uh, he wrote me a, a speech. <laughs> I delivered the speech at the scoping session, mm -hmm. which is really hitting below the belt. That wasn't the purpose of the scoping session, but it seemed like a great opportunity to yes. to try to sink it. And uh, uh, the speech was good enough that it got repeated in in the uh, Congressional Journal. So, <laughs> why are you laughing? Well, <laughs> so I get so I get a kick out of that. Okay, and uh, and in fact, the uh, the whole project seemed to peter out very quickly after I. <laughs> Senator Peter went through it like that. That's wonderful. Yeah, and um, other dam projects have uh, have also failed. Like I remember that when I was a young man, the Big A Dam yep. uh, at the West Branch of the Penobscot, yep. they were going to build that. And uh, my family, of course, was interested in and was involved in the whitewater rafting industry. So I had a front row seat for that whole scenario. And it was yep. the mill workers that wanted it, Big A all the way. Yep. And um, it died on the vine. Um, yep. So that's great. And thank you for your work on that because millions of people have enjoyed the Allagash since that time. And it would never be the same if there was a dam there. I had never traveled the Allagash before that. After I uh, had the opportunity to learn more about it, uh, I did take a trip down the Allagash. I had a great time. In uh, the, full, the full length of it? and um critical parts of it. I that's think. what i need to know yeah. that's very good okay that dickie lincoln uh project would have been the largest public works project ever attempted in maine i believe and sometimes and it started to get a momentum of its own and sometimes it just takes one person to say you know the emperor really has no clothes here and, and the ease with which it was derailed uh means that that a lot of people were probably thinking what dad was thinking but uh, but weren't willing to say it do you remember those times yourself I have some recollection of them. Uh, yeah. Being a kid in high school or junior high, I had other other things on my mind probably, but uh, but I was generally aware from what Dad said and what people talked to me about what Dad was doing that uh, that he was leading the leading the charge. Yeah. And my my I think John. I mean, I'm kind of don't want to put you on the spot here, but when I told my parents, my mother and father, that I was going to guide you back in '98. When you and uh, Steve Brook and I went on a, on a trip, yeah. they were just over the moon. Really? They said, "You, Michael, this is one of the greatest opportunities. John Lund is going to go down as one of the most important people in Maine. So uh, I just want you to know that they, they were very proud of the day that I was able to take you down the river. So that was a lot mm -hmm. of fun. Um, but, uh, John, so let's talk about – let's bring this back to the Maine Sportsman. I think that um, you started the Maine Sportsman uh, with, with a group. With a group. Um, what, when was that? 72, 70, yeah, 70, 71 with the, uh, with the, uh, with the Gazetteer, with the, yeah. uh, the, 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 we, we, we started with the, uh, the Gazetteer, which was a once a year publication. And, uh, I think we'll have some copies of it here. You can yeah. take a look at it. Not to be confused with the main Atlas and Gazetteer, yes. but it was a, it was a, uh, a, a, a pamphlet size uh, booklet that covered the laws, it covered uh, the game animals, identification, uh, birds, uh, uh, and it was a compilation. I think it had tides in it and sunrise and sunset. It was a compilation of all the things hunters and fishermen needed to know in order to uh, to uh, recreate in Maine. And that was published for four years in a row. And about the second year, 
uh, not only did, did you realize what a challenge it was to put that out and make it different, but also you said maybe there is a market for this on a monthly basis in the form of a of a, a monthly publication. Yeah, so the start of it was a once a year almanac and guide. And uh, then we figured out that Maine hunters and fishermen were shrewd enough that they realized we didn't have fresh information for the whole issue. So they could kind of skip a year and, and uh, save a few bucks. And uh, so it, the the uh, the uh, successive issues of it were slower and slower to yeah to, to get to market. What you uh, and so for the listening audience, Will is holding up some of the earlier. Is looking at 1971, 1972. I'm guessing this is 73. Yes, it is. Yeah. So this is just a small, almost like a farmer's almanac. Yeah. This feels like the Geiger Brothers farmer's almanac to me. Yeah. And you can almost smell the mothballs coming out of. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. I want to look at these before I leave today. Um, so the how interesting is, part about this? Is yeah, let's hear about it. That the almanac. Maine Sportsman's Guide and Almanac was a creation of Wendell Trimbley. He was a former uh, staffer at Inland Fish and Wildlife. Okay. Uh, and he had this idea. And uh, he went around and uh, lined up advertising for it and uh, found uh, people who would write for it and the information. And he really, it was really a solo publication by most most descriptions. I don't think there was anything else like it at the time. Was there anything else like it? No, no nothing like it. But we discovered that some shrewd Maine sportsmen figured this is a lot like last year's. <laughs> and and so we 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 saw the the income coming down on a on a downward slope. So at that point we said well we could we could uh, there's enough information here to get us started on a monthly publication. So were you circulating the the all the, the Gazetteer Maine what were we calling it? The Maine Sportsman Gazetteer? Uh yeah, Maine Outdoorsman's Guide. I love it. And Almanac. Were you driving your cars circulate these? Did you how were they getting out? People um, would subscribe to them or I think uh, I didn't do that. I was the part of the man, part of the owners and management. I didn't do those things. Right. But uh, we did find people who were interested in doing it, and and Wendell uh, was a one man band himself, and uh, had lots of energy and, and lots of good ideas. Wendell Tremblay. So that name sounds familiar. I know I grew up with some Tremblays. Do you know where Wendell lived? He lived uh, across the river. Yeah. In Chelsea, I think. Chelsea. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and as things progressed. Uh, I think well, Wendell probably located Harry Vanderweide, and and the next thing we knew, uh, we had a public education that was rolling. Yeah, and I'm, I have a few questions about Harry and yeah. uh, Ken Allen later on. We'll get to yeah. those guys. So at that time, you know, we're in the seventies. Um, your audience were probably mostly Mainers and so a little bit of people that were traveling in and out. Has the readership really dynamically changed or has that been the core readership for the magazine? John, I, think you... it has, I think it has changed quite a bit, actually. Okay. It, it was primarily for what uh, it was primarily hunting and fishing. And there wasn't the uh, uh, international hunting and fishing opportunities that you see now. Right. 
Right. If people travel to hunt and fish, I travel to hunt and fish myself, mostly fish. Yeah. Um, so that's let's segue right into that. Will, uh, as a managing editor, can you speak to the current relationship and the subscribers of the popular sporting magazine as the readership changed over the years, in your opinion, and how? I think it certainly has. Uh, the 70s, uh, I was around, it's, it's still a long time ago, the hunting and fishing from everything I've read was an activity engaged in mostly by um, male uh, participants, uh, and uh, they would bring their youngsters along and, and sort of raise them in the, in the family. We realized uh, that things have changed dramatically uh, now. So uh, I began encouraging, we, we, began, we instituted a, a youth writer, uh, a, a, young, a young Maine sportsman's, uh, young Maine sportsman columnist, uh, that works fine until until they grow up, and then we have to find new ones. Ideally, kids are in junior high when they take an interest. Some of them I meet through running uh, uh, writing contests for school age kids. But uh, so young people are good writers, uh, and they are enthusiastic. Uh, women are uh, great writers, and as you know, it's the fastest growing segment it of is. the uh, of uh, the outdoor world. And of course, in Maine, here we have. Uh, the uh, example of that with our IFNW uh, commissioner Judy Camuso, um, but but we I now have two women writing for me uh, uh, full time. One is an RN who writes our health uh, uh, piece. Uh, actually, three. We have a canoe guide uh, as well who starts off every almanac, and Christy Holmes who does a wonderful job. Christy Holmes who now has uh, a last name of Elliot. She was just recently uh, married a couple of weeks ago. But uh, uh, Christy brings not only the, uh, the the female interest and perspective, but also does a wonderful job with self-promotion. She is a, she uh, works with several, with major companies and also has her own guiding business and takes women out and, uh, and uh, promotes through uh, social media those events. So, so of necessity and, and to meet our, our uh, readers' expectations, we have tried to expand upon the basic hunting and fishing uh, uh, world and tried to uh, acknowledge the fact that the more and different types of folks are, are hunting and fishing in Maine these days. That's great. So that, that's excellent, Will. Thanks for sharing how the, the readership has changed. John, I'd like to come back to you, uh, go back in history a little bit and, and yep. ask you about if you had any involvement or you had real strong visibility, because one of the things that was going on, I mean, I was only five at the time, uh, was the Clean Water Act of 1974. Uh, what was going on in Maine at that time? Maine had not yet cleaned up its water very much. I used to hunt ducks between Augusta and Watermill. And they were, we called them whistlers. They were black and white ducks. And we had used decoys. And we put the decoys out on the string. When you brought the decoy back in, there'd be some disagreeable looking stuff hanging off the ankle. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, the odd part is that was great down in Merrimeeting Bay because all this fertilizer was going in Merrimeeting Bay. And the, and the duck hunting was better down there then than it has been since. Yeah. But... Uh, but the 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 moving water was pretty badly polluted then. But politically, and what was going on in the political environment, I can't now imagine 
that there must have been an incredible pushback because of our logging heritage and our paper industry heritage. Um, and you being attorney general around right on the heels of that happening. That's true. And uh, a little bit later on, I was uh, uh, involved in uh, bringing a civil action to uh, end the log drives because the log drives were being used. The rivers are being used as a holding area and they preempted other uses of the river. And so I sponsored a, a bill to uh, end the log drives, which brought uh, endless grief from the then very prominent politically uh, connected uh, paper industry and logging industry. But it was effective. It worked ultimately. Yeah. But uh, it only worked when we had uh, Peter Mills had been a seatmate of mine in the Senate when I was there. This is the father of our of our governor, and uh, he was he was a U.S. attorney, and he took note of the litigation I had initiated with the uh, uh, ending the log drive, and uh, did some research and found that there was a federal law called the Rivers and the Harbors Act which forbade the exact kind of use that was being made of the river with logging. And uh, ultimately, fascinating. Uh, ultimately, the legislature uh, uh, said, okay, no more log drives. Incredible. And of course, we've all seen the historic videos. If you've ever been in the Main State Museum from stump to, to ship. Um, and even just this last weekend, I was guiding on the Androscoggin River and we had lunch and there were three, four foot pulp logs that, I mean, there's still signs of it. Well, guys. Yeah. We, I still see it all over the place. They're and, still there. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. But uh, the other thing that's happening too is because of the work of some of our friends and, and people that we trust uh, with the environment in Maine and on the rivers like Steve Brook, and I want to talk about Steve later, we're seeing a resurgence of all of the anadromous fish and the sturgeon coming back into Cobbacy recently. And this is really all everything we hope for would happen with all of these little things. It's not all just one thing, it's all of it working together. So you get the Clean Water Act, getting rid of all of the uh, wastewater treatment facilities, making the uh, paper companies accountable for what they're putting in the river, and naturally taking out you know useless dams. I just, I mean, I don't want to get political about Brookfield, but I feel like I feel like we're at a point right now where they they really need to take a little bit more responsibility for making fish passage on on some of our rivers, and I think that's something that it may be uh, a precedent where someone like yourself, John, who has uh, vision, like we talked about with preventing the Allagash Dam, to say you just can't take an endangered species and ignore it because you don't want to do that. Um, and I think our and there's probably nobody in this listening audience who is a fisher, a hunter, and a sportsman. They would call themselves an environmentalist and disagree with that. There, I'm going to get off my soapbox. You want to say something about that, Will? Can you imagine being the fly fisherman who was this summer uh, standing in Cabasi County Stream where it enters the Kennebec River? He looked around his feet and saw a sturgeon up to 10 feet long going right by his feet uh, as, as he was fishing there. Um, Steve Brook heard about that and went hustling down and took some photographs and uh, was as excited as anybody else. We all were to see that. Steve's a great guy. Uh, love to get Steve on the podcast. I'm going to try to talk to him soon about that. Um, you, you might make some note of the fact yes. that Steve was the center of the Kinnebec Coalition. At, uh, we're we're going to talk about that. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I, let's actually go right there now. Um, so we just talked about cleaning up uh, the rivers in 74. Well, now all of a sudden coming between the 90s and 2000, I want to say 98, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is trying to figure out if they're going to offer a relicensing of the Edwards Dam in Augusta, which connected to the Edwards textile mill for the listening audience. That's where everyone worked in Augusta that was, you know, kind of blue collar. And they decided through the influence of a lot of different people that it wasn't worth it to relicense it. It had more impact. John, can you state what I'm about to say? Or I'll lead you into it. But it was going to be better for the future and better for the economy and better for the environment to remove the dam than the value that it brought in terms of kilowatts. That was a long, bitter fight. But it but it was one. Uh, organizations like the Kinabit Coalition empowering a lot of anglers and other people who provided evidence of what was actually there and what was being uh, sidetracked by the presence of the dam. Exactly. So the, at the time, I was probably in my teens and, you know, I knew, I knew Steve, I knew Greg Pont from TU and um, the guys that were involved with um, like Friends of Mary Meeting Bay. I know that... Um, I'm going to forget, you said the Kennebec Coalition, um, Betsy Ham, who was working with uh, Friends of Mary Meeting Bay. I, I was in an interesting position because when you were just saying that Steve Brooke would bring people to the river and show them what was going on, guess who was his taxi driver? Sue? Yeah. So we had some the journalists from the New York Times coming up or some outdoor writer from out of state or maybe even someone politically here that they felt Steve felt would benefit from seeing firsthand. And uh, so I was really lucky. And that's partly how I met your dad. Right. So that was through that connection. Dad had some photo opportunities during that time too. someone from the Department of Interior came up and I think he brought then uh, Governor Angus King out to catch stripers uh, below the dam. So uh, dad uh, did what he could, I think, to uh, to continue that good work. I think we were all standing on the West Bank, uh, kind of near the proximity of where the Kimberly, not Kimberly Clark, what was the tissue mill on the, on the opposite side of the river, John? Downstream from the Lippman poultry. Was it Hudson? Back in the day, it was Hudson. Well, on the east side, it would have been... E east side, I'm sorry. Edwards Manufacturing. It would have been the cotton mill. Um, that's the west side. That would be the west side. Side, right. Yeah, but the east side on the other side, what was it? Well, when you go back, uh, it was at one point uh, Hudson Pulp and Paper Company, okay, which my father was uh, the general manager of locally. So we we stood on that bluff with the Department of Interior. I'm trying to Bab Babbitt, mm -hmm. was it? Yep, Bruce Babbitt. Bruce Babbitt, and I stood back, you know, 100 feet from these guys, but they were doing the speech, and then we saw the excavator come out and pierce the. Coffer Dam, John, you had to have been standing in that crowd. Absolutely, I was. I was standing on, on the, uh, uh, on the west side. Yes, on a high cluff where I could. That's, yes, where I could look down. Yeah, and, and see this fellow, uh, dressed in a tuxedo. <laughs> uh, he was. Yeah, he dressed in a tuxedo with his big, big uh, excavator, taking a swipe. And all of a sudden, the water began to go, and then he backed away as fast as he could. Yeah, because the coffer dam got washed out very quickly. It wasn't an incredible to watch. You can still see footage of it. There, there's actually public television has a very interesting piece yeah. on it. I actually just found it when I was doing the YouTube thing one night. But 
Yeah, incredible time. So just for the audience, too, there was a lot. I mean, to, to take a dam out is to say it is one thing, to do it is another. Uh, what was really going on was all of a sudden politically there was approval. Um, I think there was support environmentally. There was, But the, there wasn't the money. There wasn't the there, – who is going to physically remove this dam? Well, BIW at the time had some project going on where they really needed to have everyone kind of just say, please let us do this. Because they were enlarging their um, industrial area and grabbing it. So they had to they, – they had some compensation that they had to do. Right. And this was, uh, I think, a, a ingenious idea from the planning office in Augusta. That this would be the good, good mitigation, and it was, and it was. Yeah, they they loaded up the equipment, went right out there, built a coffer dam, yeah. uh, effectively removed the original structure. You could buy furniture that was made out of the original Edwards Dam as a fundraiser, and uh, it was just great. I was, like I said, I must have been in my early twenties, but maybe mid twenties. But it was an exciting time because we didn't know what was going to happen. And Steve, of course, Steve Brook. Um, who was, again, as John articulated, was heading, head of the Kennebec Coalition and really spearheading this whole thing on a lot of levels, uh, was explaining that this is what this, the river is going to look like after we take, we need to take these clams and these mussels and we need to do this. It's going to be an effort, an ongoing effort. But sure enough, in a couple of years, you're going to see this river blossom again like it hasn't in 170 years. And he was right. It I came back it to life like that. It has far exceeded anybody's expectations. And if somebody had said you're going to see sturgeon up here on Cobbacy Stream, you'd have thought they were daydreaming. I had a John. I was I was fishing from Waterville down to Sydney. Yeah. And I think they call it Six Mile Falls. Is when you yep. get down, there's the cable car that goes across. Yeah. I had a couple of guys from Harpswell on my boat, uh, fly fishermen, and we were anchored up. And we were really smallmouth bass fishing with hopes of maybe catching a striper, but we didn't know yet. This was the first year. And a six-foot sturgeon breached right next to the boat that year that yeah. that happened. Yeah. So they were they moved in immediately. And I think the guys that are all paying attention to alewife would talk about the amount of alewife that went all the way up to Waterville and Winslow and started going into, is it Sebastocook Stream there? I think so. Right? Yeah, incredible. So thank you for your work with that and and, and helping and... And people are realizing it's it's not just fish going up; it's fish growing up, growing, and then going back into the bay where they provide protein for tuna and uh, stripers and all the fish there that are waiting. So and brownfish too. Yep, yeah, that whole that whole process had been had been stopped or slowed by the uh, by the dams. Absolutely right. Well, I think uh, I want to talk a lot more about the main sportsman itself. Um, I want to talk more about you, Will, because we haven't even got to you yet. Your dad is so fun to talk to. Uh, but let's take a little break, and um, we'll, uh, we're will we going to go to have a fly line flashback, which is a part in the middle of the interview where we talk a little bit about the history of Maine uh, through a different lens. And so we'll come back after a few minutes. This fly line flashback focuses on our Maine statesman, Edmund Muskie. Edmund Muskie was born on March 28, 1914 in Rumford, Maine, and became the 64th governor of the state of Maine in 1954 for two consecutive terms. He went on to run for United States president unsuccessfully in 1972. Following that loss, he returned to the United States Senate and began to work on his legacy projects. He promoted the 1960s environmental movement, 
which led to the passage of the Clean Air Act of 1970 and the Clean Water Act of 1972. In September of 1962, Rachel Carson's famous book, A Silent Spring, helped to sway public opinion regarding the state of the environment and the impacts of pesticides and led to the creation of the United States Environmental Protection Agency. The Clean Water Act was one of the United States' first and most influential modern environmental laws. Technically, the name of the law was originally the Federal Water Pollution Control Act. The law was initially vetoed by then-President Richard Nixon. As Nixon, in his veto message, suggested, he hoped to attack pollution in a way that does not ignore other very real threats to the quality of life, such as spiraling prices and increasingly erroneous taxes. At $24 billion, Nixon wrote, the act was just too expensive. Within 24 hours following the presidential veto, Edmund Muskie gave a compelling speech on the Senate floor. He had given many speeches advocating for environmental preservation, which earned him the nickname, Mr. Clean. Muskie offered in his compelling address, can we afford clean water? Can we afford rivers and lakes and streams and oceans, which continue to make life possible on this planet? Can we afford life itself? Those questions were never asked as we destroyed the waters of our nation, and they deserve no answer as we finally move to restore and renew them. This country was once famous for its rivers, but today, the rivers of this country serve as little more than sewers to the seas. The danger to health, the environmental damage, the economic loss can be seen anywhere. It was because of this conviction to improve the rivers and waters, partnered by his incredible charismatic and rhetorical influence through words, that the Federal Water Pollution Act passed into law with almost unanimous bipartisan support. In 1977, Muskie amended the Federal Water Control Act to pass the Clean Water Act. Between 1972 and 1977, river log drives were abolished. Municipal wastewater treatment facilities began to replace raw sewage dumping, and the industries that lined the rivers of Maine and abroad began to clean the water they were using and replace it under careful federal guidance. I spend most of my time on the water on the Androscoggin River, guiding below Ed Muskie's hometown of Rumford. I can report that the river is in recovery. The water is clear and clean and full of fish and invertebrates. Bald eagles and osprey nest along the river and their numbers are in abundance. I owe a great debt of gratitude to this great statesman for allowing me to have a place to share and enjoy today as a result of his considerable work and influence. And now, back to the second half of our podcast. John, before we talk about the Maine Sportsman magazine, and, and Will, I want to talk to you a lot more about that as well. Um, I just want to finish up a little bit more about the the Edwards Dam and the removal. John, we talked about the good things that came out of it, but I'm sure that there were some opponents at the time. There certainly were some opponents, and some of them took advantage of their position to try to solidify their opposition. The city of Augusta, the city council, uh, voted to join the owners of the dam in order to make it difficult to remove the dam. What do you think their their motive was at the time? A, a uh, distorted form of patriotism. Okay. Distorted form of patriotism. Yeah. Yeah. Other opponents as well? Landowners on the shore or anything like that? Sure. Yeah. Lots of them. Sure. I think people had, they were worried about their uh, their camp or home having a different look or value as a result of the dam being gone. I remember hearing some of that. But um, 
yeah, like I said before, uh, change is never met with a warm handshake. Um, In, including my in-laws at the time. Yeah, they weren't in favor of what you were trying to do? <laughs> no, John's shaking his head no. There, there were timber interests on both sides of the family. Uh, Dad's own father, he mentioned, was a paper mill sure. uh, manager. And, uh, and uh, on the other side of the family was a large uh, timber holding uh, individual. So, so it, it made for... I guess I'd rather skip that, though. It, it, I, I see no point in... Yeah, no, we don't need to go there. Okay, so let's go. Let's go in another direction. Will, um, your dad's running the the magazine, or, or or at least one of the owners of the magazine, not running it, but just he, <laughs> yeah. he has an interest in it. And uh, at some point, you you go to law school yourself. You went to Coney High School. You went to you Maine or no? I went to Bowdoin College. Bowdoin, you did go yeah, to Bowdoin. Yeah, You're yeah. a polar bear as well. Both of yeah. you are polar bears. Yeah. Okay. So then, and then went to uh, law school at the University of Maine School of Law down in Portland. Sure. And uh, I uh, did some private private law practice, and then did some work with the Attorney General's office, uh, and then was appointed the first of uh, several terms as uh, Superintendent of Maine's Bureau of Consumer Credit Protection, a consumer protection financial services regulator uh, uh, down here in Gardner. Uh, at the same time, I began uh, taking an interest, helping Dad out. Dad was uh, driving to Yarmouth at the time. Our office was located there, proofreading 80 pages. Uh, this was back... Uh, 15 years ago or okay. so now, 20 sure. years ago, yeah. uh, proofreading by himself uh, 80 pages. And so I took a half day off from work, uh, uh, took a half day of vacation day, would join him once a month to go through. Uh, eventually, there was an opening in the uh, Sebago region column. And so I began doing that. Uh, that was too constraining. Uh, I wanted to be have a, a broader uh, uh, area. So I invented this concept of sporting sporting environment, which means basically whatever... I thought was interesting and whatever I thought readers would be interested in. So I so I uh, uh, wrote that sporting environment column for a while. Uh, Where were you living at the time, Will? I was living in Portland. Okay. So, so, so Bago was a natural fit for you then? Correct. Okay. That's right. That's right. And I loved uh, and I really enjoyed that regional column. For example, I uh, went got on a boat with the Portland Water District and went around to the protected end of Sebago, and they explained the measures they took. Um, a lot was going on uh, in Sebago and west of there, so that was fun. Sporting environment allowed me to do a little bit more, uh, talk with, start talking with wardens, start talking with biologists, and do a more general uh, column. About that time, I started helping certain writers uh, uh, with their editing. Uh, certain writers said that they would they wanted me to edit their pieces. And so I picked up two or three writers. And then uh, 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 Harry Vanderweide was working for us at the time, a great uh, role model for me to follow, very enthusiastic uh, fellow. Uh, at some point, he decided that he wanted to pursue other things. Mm -hmm. uh, Ken Allen came on, and eventually Ken Allen uh, uh, also uh, stayed with us for a number of years and then, and then, uh, and then left. And so by that time, um, uh, I was the last man standing in terms of anybody with editing experience. And so, and so for the last, for five or six years now, I've been managing editor uh, here uh, with uh, constant supervision by the publisher, <laughs> my dad. Uh, and, uh, and it's, uh, it's been an absolute blast. Yeah, I can imagine it is. So just to kind of recap what you just said, uh, Harry had been working, John, you'd mentioned Harry before. Um, 
Ken Allen, did they work together? I think they did work together. They quite did a bit, work together. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, Harry was the editor, and uh, Ken was the assistant editor for several years. Yes, and they were both contributing writers as well. Correct. And 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 you were doing uh, Sebago, and then you created this larger area. Yep. But there's this one thing that our audience is dying for us to talk about, and we haven't talked about yet. What happened? How did the Maine Sportsman Show come out of this, John? Who had the idea to have the Maine Sportsman Show? I don't recall. I think it sort of spontaneously popped up at some point, and we had we had worked cooperatively with the Sportsman's Alliance in Maine before. Sportsman's Alliance in Maine, okay. And and it is a a, a partnership between the Maine Sportsman and the Sportsman's Alliance of Maine. That's important. I didn't I didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay. Well, a lot of people. Uh, beat on us uh, thinking that we're the Sam. And, and, no, uh, no, I don't think of you as Sam at all. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with Sam. No, no, no nothing wrong, wrong with Sam. Sam. No. The, so, early, the early sportsman shows yeah. were out at the uh, Augusta Armory. I remember going there as a youngster and seeing long casting pools. We had fewer people in attendance. Now we're up to uh, eight or 9,000. It makes it, makes it making room inside for a casting pool a little bit more difficult. But back in the day, we were in the Augusta Armory, and we had enough room and few enough people so that we could have a full-length uh, fly fishing casting pool there. And the Armory, of course, for the audience, is right below the airport on Western Avenue in Augusta. And I almost remember that you're mentioning the casting pool. I think my father brought me to that. But it didn't conjure up the same image as what you see now. I mean, the main sportsman show was a – well, first off, it came around April Fool's Day. Right. Yes. And that was the first day of open water fishing. If you were foolish enough to go and try to catch a fish then. And we live near Wings Mills Dam and Mount Vernon and Belgrade. So we always tried. And that would be something we do is we go to the sportsman show one day and then come back. But even the sportsman show has changed a lot. The timing is interesting. Uh, you mentioned April Fool's, uh, uh, April 1st. It also often coincides with Easter. And so at first we worked ourselves into a frenzy trying to work around major holidays. One year we held it on Easter, and people simply showed up better dressed on that Sunday than they were on the other days. It was uh, yep. so people people will attend. Uh, the, our our fans and enthusiasts will attend uh, if if we if we uh, open the doors. John, do you have a particular memory uh, or some circumstance surrounding the earlier days of the main sportsman, the the sportsman show that you could share with the audience that maybe some people wouldn't know about? As an example, just trying to arrange it, just to organize it. Did you? Did you? Did you? Did Harry? I know Harry played a very strong role. Harry played a, 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 a strong role there, and um, who was the lady who ran Sam for a long time? Edie Cronk. So it was it was Harry and Edie Cronk. You said Edie Cronk. Cronk. Tell me about her. C R O N K. Um, well, she was a force that you reckoned with. And uh, uh, if we had any idea of having any progressive kind of a booth, uh, we could count on Edie that she would probably veto it. So Natural Resources Council of Maine, Audubon, did not have a booth at the early shows, did they? <laughs> they did not have any early booths. But there are booths like that now. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, I know that like Native Fish Coalition um, yep. is doing some stuff there. And they raised some interesting points because, you know, if you're trying to uh, have some visibility in the state, you're going to... Governor is going to walk through there, right? The governor Su always does walk through there. Susan and Collins, yeah. The the congressional delegation makes it makes it part of their uh, process as well. Yeah. So especially, I mean, especially if there's an election coming up. 
Yeah, it's not just a putting hands in hands, but also it's there's a big audience there. I mean, from across the state, you got people coming down from Patton and up in the county. You got people along coastline. There's a whole new this whole new ATV thing now is, you know, you guys have dedicated a lot to, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of ATVs, but I'm a big fan of the money that they're bringing for registration, licensing, and also improving the trails and getting people access around. It's interesting how I've seen the main sportsman change over the years and the show change, meaning the sportsman show in Augusta. That's correct. What do you remember about it changing? Well, as you said, back in the day, it was very conservative uh, uh, booths. our rule now is, first of all, there's a there's a waiting list for people to be exhibitors. And so you've got to you've we provide the first option for people who exhibit one year to exhibit the following year. Uh, but there certainly has been an increase in the in power sports uh, uh, exhibits with uh, with boats and ATVs and snowmobiles uh, and dock systems and so on. Uh, and as you said, we have broadened the allowable group as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we don't, we don't have uh, the uh, gutter people or roofing people. You've got to you've got to relate to the outdoors uh, outdoor activities. Uh, so the, there that rule remains. Uh, but but we if if we have a if we have an environmental group. Uh, uh, we look at it and, and and talk about it, and and if there's a way to let folks in uh, and, and encompass them rather than exclude them, we will do that. Right, but they need to be they need to be qualified in hunting, fishing, outdoor related. That's correct. Items. Yeah, that's, that, right. that's only fair for everyone too. That's right. Yeah, we don't. There's no no insurance <laughs> agencies. No, so so there are rules about subject matter. Yeah, and that's what makes it um, culturally interesting, I think, for the people of the state, and it's also a good. We're all, as we say up here in Maine, you're getting a little wood square by by <laughs> April, right? So there's a term. Yeah, the first time I heard that term, uh-huh. we were talking about Tim Pond. Sure. And Tim Pond used to have an all season person who stayed there. Yeah. And when I went in one time during the deer season, I was cautioned: you got to look out for old Rod. He said, "Old Rod is a little wood square." <laughs> <laughs> and what they mean by that for the audience is you've really just been in the woods so long that he might talk your ear off. He might try to bum your last cigarette. But he, also, might, he might try to go through your sack and find a can of hat. You also might check your luggage, see if there's any bottles in there that <laughs> yeah. you could tap into and replace them with water so that it wouldn't show. Exactly. That's <laughs> queer. I love it. And that's, of course, politically correct as it means something different. <laughs> Um, so, uh, thank you for all that, uh, Will. That was a great explanation about how the shows evolved. Uh, one person that we mentioned earlier and someone that I think can't go without more mention is, uh, is Steve Brook. And you have not only a personal relationship with, with Steve, but a professional relationship over the years. You guys have worked together on different projects. But let's not talk about the projects. Let's talk about Steve. Tell me about, tell the audience about who Steve Brook has been in your life. How did you meet him? Um... Steve used to work for the museum, and uh, he he went to school. He trained as a as a preservationist working in a museum. And uh, Steve' job got eliminated in, in a economy move, mm-hmm. and he had the opportunity to knock off the person who was below him and take his job. Steve said, no thanks, I'm not going to do that. 
And that's when he went to work for the Kennebec Coalition. Was the Kennebec Coalition already established at that point? Do you remember? No, it was sort of an idea in somebody's head. And we realized that there were a lot of bookkeeping details of presentations and filings that needed to be made. And somebody needed to keep track of those things and prompt the people, you know, the Inland Fish and Wildlife Wardens or whatever it was, somebody needed to be the glue that held all that together and pass the word out that it was time to do this or to do that. And Steve was the perfect person to do that. He was. So there was some work being done with the Kennebec Coalition before Steve got involved. Could be. Could be. Okay. Yeah. Um He's the most earnest man I think I know. He, I fished with him up at Sadnahunk and uh, at Tim Pond, and he can talk at great length about how I should take up the art of making my own bamboo rods and uh, <laughs> make the six panels and cut them all at an angle and glue them together uh, and then tie and then uh, th put the uh, th thread on the, the, the guides. Um, and it's fascinating stuff, every bit of it. Yeah, but you're you're saying something more about Steve there. <laughs> He's the most earnest man that I know. <laughs> yeah, and it's a lot of like, all positive things. There's nothing you cannot say a negative thing about Steve. Correct. He's a fantastic person. The one thing you should keep track of, though, is that Steve is a man for details. Yes, he doesn't just pass things on to subordinates. He sees to it that something gets done because he's there watching it happen. He's a man of conviction for sure. Yep. If that's he a, if he if he's made up his mind about something, that's not going to change. I mean, yeah. And and he's usually for it's usually an, a good a good thing for the environment people in the area. Um, we have another connection. Um, my family and your family. My mother grew up in Augusta, and she lived with you for a while. She babysat you, Will, when you were a little boy. <laughs> and uh, so, just to, for the audience, a quick quick story is that my mother, who uh, is now living in Scarborough, eighty years old, uh, found out I was interviewing you both and she said oh please tell them to say hello and my mother was going to dental hygiene school and was getting ready to go and was struggling to come up with a tuition and you came into her room she was staying in your house in augusta and tried to give her your piggy bank of money that you had not you know naively thinking that that would be enough um and she appreciated the gesture but then at the end of the day um we all are connected in some way and that's um my mother was a Basically, a nanny for you. It's a great story. Yeah, it is. So, John, with regards to speaking to you, with regards to the Maine sportsman, I know that we're we're going to talk about in, in a few minutes, uh, Will, about the vision of like how you're all going to make it possible. What would you like the legacy of the magazine to be? Um, you know, when you started with the idea of what the magazine would be, and it's turned into what it is today, did it follow the path of the vision that you? I don't think that I had any vision as to where it might go. Okay. But I think it started out as a hook and bullet uh, uh, formula. Yeah. And I hope to see it progress to something more than that. Yes. And we have had an environmental writer that comes in. We have uh, a lot of very interesting, not just hook and bullet issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people are talking about water, different watercraft, canoes, kayaks, stand-up paddle boards. Every, people are fishing off from stand-up paddle boards. So you just, you know, and COVID really might have helped your audience because I think people are more focused now. I know Judy Camuso talked to me about this when we did the podcast with her and Janet, that more people, they sold more hunting and fishing licenses than the previous year when COVID happened. Uh, more state park passes. So people have to be picking up that magazine and... 
So where 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 do you sell the main sportsman? If you're looking to pick up a copy of the main sportsman, will you can get it online? You can get it online. You can call here uh, at our offices in Augusta. You can order uh, online a written subscription. Uh, we also distribute to as many stores as we can around the state of Maine. So most all of the Hannafords and Shaws, most all of the uh, uh, grocery stores, as many small corner stores as we can afford to get it to, uh, either have it on the shelf or have a small rack. So it's really uh, for far northern Maine is a challenge. We, we tend to send bundles of magazines up to the stores up there to try to make sure that our coverage is as, as good as possible. But we're, you know, we probably have 20,000 readers uh, each month, uh, 8,000 copies or so, uh, uh, and so it, it gets around. Um, and as I mentioned, about half of our readers probably have permanent addresses in Maine. Mm -hmm. Half of them are out of state, either have traveled here uh, and hunted and want to be remembered, uh, or kids have moved out of Maine and they want, and the parents uh, as a gift say, we want to uh, give you a subscription. So every month you'll be reminded of what, why you should come back here as soon as you can. It's great. And it, you, if you just read the letters to the editor that you, you, you know, obviously you edit and publish and bring them in. Yeah, they're far-reaching. These are not just people from Vassalboro. They're they're coming. You're getting letters from all over the world. I've got to tell you, the 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 uh, that's right. We uh, from uh, well, Alaska is still part of us, but still a long ways away in the last issue. Uh, but letters to the editor is among the most rewarding uh, uh, items for me to receive and to respond to. Um, that those are folks who've taken the time, uh, oftentimes with a, a a pen and paper, like the old days, just to tell their story or to. Uh, tell us we're doing a good job or to tell us why we should do something differently. Oftentimes there are photographs uh, enclosed. Uh, a lot of our folks are writing books or are interested in, in having us look at books. But it's uh, uh, that, re that reader response uh, mm -hmm. is probably the most rewarding thing as an editor. You know, you mentioned earlier about young writers. Have you thought about having a writing competition? I've held writing competitions uh, in the past, and I'm now part of the New England Outdoor Writers. I'm president of the New England Outdoor Writers Association, and uh, and traditionally that group would hold uh, uh, writing contests as well. And so very soon we're going to reactivate that. Teachers love it. Uh, yeah. it, it. It gives them something to focus on. And oftentimes for teachers, especially in the middle school, uh, early high school, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll be a, a student who is not really interested in in uh, in the uh, mathematics or in calculus, but have them uh, just if they know all about decimals when it comes to twenty twos and uh, and three oh eights. So and they're anxious to write about it and to talk about it. And so it, it sometimes it succeeds writing about the outdoors succeeds in bringing uh, certain students out of their shell. Yeah, for the audience, a twenty-two is a low-caliber rifle round, <laughs> and a three hundred eight is a deer hunting rifle round. That's great. Well, so I'm glad to hear that you are doing something with writing competition because that that's a great way to plant a seed too. For because I mean, if at the end of the day, what we're talking about is you're doing a publication of other people's work. Let's talk about that. Um, you know, you talk about having some people employed, John. Like, you know, in the ranks we had Harry and Ken Allen, um, but you also had to have a, a pretty large pool of volunteer writers. Indeed. Um, even even early on in the very beginning, right, during the 70s, and you couldn't afford to pay people to write. You had to actually, ask people. Actually, we did pay people. You did? Yeah, we did pay people. Uh, that was a difference between 
Harry approach and wills. If Harry didn't like a column, he would send it back. Said this doesn't pass muster. <laughs> Will takes the time to explain why it isn't good, and may even make a few pointers on how it could be made better. Well, that's what a teacher does. Yeah, that's what a coach does. Actually, I should say, if Rod McGarry was listening to this, he'd say that's what a coach does. How to do it better. But we do pay our writers. Uh, the only the only exception is if a a reader wants to do a one-off story, and if it's good enough, we'll run it, and uh, uh, the compensation is they'll receive a couple of copies of the issue for themselves. But all of our regular writers and our guest writers uh, are compensated. So really, it's uh, it's 30 or 40 people all over the state of Maine yeah. and now in uh, Vermont and New Hampshire yeah. uh, writing each month. And in terms of the skills I look for, obviously, if I can, if I can find a good writer who's a good outdoors person, that's a great combination. But if I had to choose one or the other, I'd rather have somebody who knows what they're talking about, who knows their skill. I'm the editor. I can I can work with them to to make it presentable. But I'd ra rather have somebody who knows trapping and knows hunting and knows fishing and can express it in their own way. We can work with that rather than have a poser who is a great writer, but who doesn't have the substance behind it. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I think that's that's good. And that's what gives your uh, publication um, credibility, right? You're writing to an audience of experts. I, I, uh, I've never tried to get away with, uh, with, uh, fluff to our, our, uh, our readers, because if I did, they would know right away, you know, they our readers are out there. So they know if something, if something is, uh, is authentic or not. Yeah. I, just a very quick story. I was, uh, approached by a, a fledgling magazine, which will go unnamed. I don't even know if they still exist, but it was a New England-based fly fishing magazine trying to get going. And they said, uh, we were going to send you a free article. And to uh, make the story short, uh, the article was talking about fishing at Brassway Dam uh, at, on the Moose River, and they caught their first rainbow trout. <laughs> Would you please advertise in our magazine? Uh, no, thank you. Why not? Well, you got to do your homework. There isn't a rainbow trout within 35, 45 miles of there. Probably closest one might be Bingham, right, guys? Right. So... Um, this has been great. Uh, so, Will, um, I know that I have only recently uh, signed up for your online version of uh, membership, annual membership for the Maine Sportsman. It's a good deal. I can read what I want and not read what I don't want. I can cut to a story if I want to just read that one story. How's that gone for you? Online version. See, we are traditionally a, a print magazine, and that's that. That is our history. That's our heritage, uh, and so the the move to online to digital uh, copies has not been a smooth one or or, or a seamless one. We're we're tr working to improve it all the time. It's there. It is readable. We're trying to uh, uh, do what we can to make it even easier. Uh, you had a suggestion earlier about having the portal for that on our own website as opposed to a separate service. That's a wonderful idea, and I think we're going to work on that. So we are actively talking with several companies now uh, to try to uh, make sure that we have the uh, digital digital edition, edition that is the easiest uh, as possible to read. Yeah, let me give you an example of opportunities. Yes. Um, so I took King Montgomery, who's a writer, contributor to your magazine, out fishing two years ago with one of his friends. He wrote an article about it. And one of my clients calls me up and says, oh, my God, have you read the uh, whatever, you know, May issue or whatever it is? Oh, you need to go get it. Well, I go out and guess what? It's sold out at my Hannaford. 
So what are my options? You know, I, look, I went to another store. It was sold out there. So I went online and I signed up. So I think, have you noticed your subscriptions have gone up? Yes, they have gone up. Uh, they have gone up. They're increasing all the time. Uh, and at some point, we will turn our attention to that fully. We have to do that without, uh, while still satisfying the folks who want the 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 romantic vision is them sitting uh, under their gaslight at their camp with the main sportsman in their lap with no internet with no internet right. and with no laptop and with no uh, with no uh, uh, no flashing lights uh, uh, that's the vision the reality is that people today not just young people but but everybody we are getting our information through different methods through different uh, media and different modes and so we have to be ready to satisfy those readers without uh, without changing and impacting our product uh, for the last 50 years. Exactly. Well, I think you're doing a good job. I mean, like we talked about, it's the transition's never seamless. It's never easy to do like, oh, we're just going to do this all at once. As an example, the, the platform you're working with that is basically promoting the publication on a website is really holding the data. And they're also holding the data of a lot of other magazine publications as well. So you're you know that that that's effective in one way, but in some ways you're kind of now a smaller fish in a larger pond. It's our goal to take back that that control and that and that ownership, and so that we have a closer connection between the print publication and the digital media. Digital media, especially with with outdoor related uh, subjects, is such a an, an, a fertile and open area because it's very. If you are digital, you can link to a video, mm -hmm. you can cite uh, statistics, you can bring people through a link directly to the source material, and that's that's what people want to see. Do you subscribe to any online magazines yourself? Well, I'm back in my hometown in Portland. The Portland Press Herald doesn't print a Monday edition anymore. They've gone digital. They didn't seem to lower my subscription price in exchange for not producing uh, a Monday. Uh, so by, by I'm being dragged uh, uh, forcibly. Uh, uh, and in addition, their print uh, publication is delayed. And so to get the Red Sox score in the morning, I go online uh, uh, early in the morning before the yeah. because I know the paper isn't going to uh, isn't going to cover it. So. Little by little and reluctantly, I'm being dragged into the digital age. Uh, uh, out of necessity, right? Out of necessity. Yeah, that's how I got onto the main sportsman online was out of necessity. I needed to read an article or see what someone had said about something. And um, I actually was getting ready to uh, – I think I was getting ready to interview Judy Camuso. And there was something – someone had, maybe someone had published an article in The Sportsman about Judy. Did you do an article on Judy? Yeah, I we did. Or article, someone did. We did an article on Judy back when she was a field biologist yeah. uh, climbing up into uh, tree stands to count ducks <laughs> over in the WMA in Western Maine. So we've, we've followed her career uh, for a long time. Yeah, WMA for the audience is a wildlife management area. Great. John, how are you holding up? Okay. <laughs> oh, great, great. All right. Um, uh, John, how do you want your legacy to be remembered as a successful, prominent politician, as a, a magazine owner, as a sportsman, as a conservationist, uh, a modern day influencer, um, you know, of the community you love and, and are so deeply involved in? What would you what would you like to people to take away from who John Lund is and was? I think the, the latter description is one that would uh, suit me. I feel very connected to the society we have here. And uh, if I can be of use in any way, 
uh, I like to do that. You like to influence people in the and with your with your knowledge and your experience. One of my current uh, interests is the resistance that hunters have to using non-lead rifle ammunition. Yeah. The strange part is that we give we give free venison to people uh, through Hunters for the Hungry. But the cuts of meat that they're getting has probably got some lead in it. And I'm not sure we should be feeding lead to people who um, yeah. are yeah. low-income people. Yeah, and so I just, because I'm not much of a deer hunter anymore, John, if I go and buy a set of Remington shells for my 270 or my 7 millimeter, are they lead bullets now? Yeah. Still? They're not made out of copper? or They something? have a copper jacket. A copper jacket. Okay. And the lead is inside. And 20 to 30% of the lead gets vaporized. Yeah, it does. And it's scattered throughout the body. And while hunters may feel that they're getting rid of the lead by eliminating the wound channel, the lead actually gets spread much faster. Beyond the wound channel, of course. So I think it's pretty. It's too bad that we're passing out a poisonous material to people that shouldn't be eating it. Is it? Is there an alternative? Yeah, yeah. Um, there are solid copper bullets that cost about half again or twice as much. Oh, that's why. And uh, and uh, I think that people don't realize how far the lead contamination spreads. Well, I know in my lifetime, and correct me if I'm wrong, John, I don't think you can use lead for waterfowl. You cannot. Right. I mean, For the same reason. Well, maybe for many reasons. It, it, it's more a, of a different problem there because there the lead gets scattered all around. And um, if, a, uh, uh, if a loon is diving and picking up pebbles from the from the bottom of the sure. uh, of a lake, they may well pick up a, a lead sinker or a piece of lead, and that's that's the end of that for the aluminum. That it, is, it, it's a toxic poison. And we see evidence, direct evidence of that. Yeah, oh, absolutely. That's absolutely, happening. absolutely. And yeah. I, I mean, that's sort of a poster child. But I think I would like to see hundred organizations facing up to the fact that we should not be including lead in our family. Uh, Food that we yeah provide to our kids yeah anyway I, I'd like to see that maybe be part of your legacy yeah yeah or at least that type of work it's not really just that exact point but it, it's the kind of work that John's had a lifetime of trying to um, kind of t I mean we haven't been kind to the earth you know Maine has been isn't it was a largely industrial state um, and John through his own experience and and uh, uh, exposure to seeing the industrialization of Augusta uh, firsthand as a boy and seeing it all get cleaned up now and also being able to, um, you know, advocate for the kinds of things that you're just talking about there in many ways, not just one, you know, you, that's lead is, is one example, but it's kind of cars a common thread through who you are as a person. And it's good that you have this, this, I wouldn't say pulpit, but you can, you can bring in the right people with the main sportsmen to get that word out. 
And I think, Will, you would, you would agree that um, nothing goes through this building unless it passes the John Lund test. <laughs> Am I right? That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. It's been great talking to you both. I really appreciate you taking the opportunity to join the podcast. I wanted our audience to know what's happening behind the scenes uh, for the main sportsman, because like I said at the beginning, it's quite possibly the most read uh, publication in the state of Maine, uh, it, right there with, uh, you know, blueberries for sale and, and the Maine Gazetteer and, <laughs> and whatnot. So thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for your kind words. All right. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for joining us for this intimate discussion. And thank you for listening to Flyline Podcast. A new Flyline Podcast episode will be released every two weeks on Tuesdays. So be sure to come back to meet our next famous guest. Until then, this is Michael Jones, and we invite you to visit the blog section of our website to enjoy photos and contributions from our guests and experience all of our episodes at flylinepodcast.com. <laughs>